Good morning, church. I want to begin by reading you something that uh, the media in the 1960s kept from you. This is called Lunar Thanksgiving. On the day of the moon landing, we awoke at 5.30 a.m. Houston time. Neil and I separated from Mike Collins in the command module. Our powered descent was right on schedule. With only seconds worth of fuel left, we touched down at 3.30 p.m. Now was the time for communion. So I installed the elements in their flight packets. I put them and the scripture reading in the little table in front of the abort guidance system computer. Then I called Houston. Houston, this is Eagle. This is LM pilot speaking. I would like to request a few moments silence. I would like to invite each person listening in wherever and whomever he may be to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his own individual way. For me, this meant taking communion. In the blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained bread and wine. I poured wine into the chalice my parish had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the cup. It was interesting to think that the first, very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten there were consecrated elements. Just before I partook of the elements, I read the words which I had chosen to indicate our trust, that as man probes into space, we are in fact acting in Christ. I sensed especially strongly my unity with our church back home and with the church everywhere. I read, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Buzz Aldrin. Out of all the things that Mr. Aldrin could have been doing the moment he landed on the moon, he stopped to celebrate communion. Why is communion so important? Why is the Eucharist so important to anyone? Of all the things that we could be doing this morning, including sitting at Starbucks and reading the New York Times, sitting at home and watching Netflix, why do we come here to break this bread and share this cup? An important document that came out of Vatican II called the Eucharist, the source and summit of the Christian life. Why is the Eucharist so central to the Christian life? That's the question that I want to ask today. And I want to suggest three reasons uh, today and talk about each of them briefly. It's kind of a Baptist-style sermon, three points, right? Okay, um, the first is this. The, the Eucharist is central to the Christian life because it's how the risen life of Jesus is communicated to his followers, Jesus said in our gospel today, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. For the life of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? So you have to think way all the way back to Genesis 3 when things went bad. Okay. What did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Right? And um, then they did it. <laughs> um, and, of course, what happens is that sin and death are enter into the creation. Right? And the creation itself comes under a curse, under the curse of sin and death. And worst of all, what happens is that humankind loses the divine life and presence of God that they had enjoyed in intimacy in the garden. 
But in his steadfast love, God refuses to leave his creatures in such a godless state. And of course, the central act of redemption is that he sends his son, Jesus, to die for the sins of the world. And what he does is he undoes the curse by taking it upon himself on the cross. St. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, he became a curse for us, for it is written, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Then here's what happens. God raises him from the dead into a life that is free from the curse of death. St. Paul says this to the Romans. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now, here's what this means. It means that a life free from the curse of death is now possible for you and for me, for the world. See, if your life has been handed over to Jesus, if you have believed in him for the forgiveness of sins and you believe that God raised him uh, from the dead, death will no longer have dominion over you. The curse of death is removed from your life. You stepped out of that and into the life of Jesus and the promise of his resurrection becomes yours. You see? But now here's a question for us. How do we participate in that resurrection life, the Jesus life, if you will, throughout our earthly pilgrimage? We do it in the Eucharist because in the Eucharist, Jesus feeds us with the bread that is for the life of the world, his sacrificed and risen body. He said this, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life, the risen Jesus life, and I will raise them up on the last day. The second thing is this, the Eucharist makes it possible for us to offer worship to God. The Eucharist makes it possible for us to offer right worship to God. Here's how this works. Um, human beings in their original form were created to, um, in a sense, to be priests, right? The Garden of Eden was a kind of a temple in which human beings were to offer up all of life in work and worship and praise and thanksgiving back to the God who gave it to them. But things went wrong. And uh, what happened is that under the power of sin, we're unable to offer that act of worship rightly because we become too in love with the creation itself rather than the creator. That's the story of scripture. So what could be done about this? Again, the faithful son of God lives a life of perfect work, worship, praise, and thanksgiving. The life that we couldn't live. He said, my work is to do the will of my father. And for the first time, for the very first time, a human being embodies the human vocation without sin or selfishness. You see, what's happening on the cross is this. It's it's the perfect act of worship. Jesus offers his very self to the Father in worship. Or as our right one Eucharistic prayer in chapel reminds us that he's a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Now, how does that make it possible for us to offer God right worship? Because we now approach our Heavenly Father in and through Jesus. Because He's enfolded us into His purity. He's removed everything from us that kept us from offering true worship. See, He takes our hard hearts that are not inclined to worship our Creator and He makes them softened with desire for our Heavenly Father. 
The author of Hebrews, um, Hebrews talks at great length about uh, Jesus' sacrifice and what it means for us. And he says this, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now we can approach with confidence because Jesus is our great high priest through whom we go to our heavenly father. See, now through Jesus, we can fulfill that priestly role that we were originally given that was mandated in the Garden of Eden. We can now offer right worship to God because we offer it through the one who offered perfect worship. We offer it in his name and in his spirit. This is why the church of Jesus Christ is referred to in the Bible as a holy priesthood. We're the people who offer up to God what belongs to him. I'm not going to talk about today the difference between an ordained priest and a but everyone is a part of the priesthood of God who plays that role of offering worship to him. Listen to what Peter says about this in scripture. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, he's talking to the church, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You see, the Eucharist is the consummate act of worship in which we offer ourselves up to our Heavenly Father through Jesus. Um, there are right one prayer. The right run has some beautiful, very beautiful parts in it. It's a much longer prayer. Um, and that's probably why you, you come to right two. But <laughs> no, in, in, in all seriousness, there's some beautiful theology in the prayer. Right one says this. Um, there's an oblation of the people, an offering up of the people. Um, and the priest says this. And we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves. You see, it's sacrificial language. We offer ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto thee. See, Buzz Aldrin's instinct was right. He felt compelled to stop and worship with communion to offer up to God praise and thanksgiving for allowing humankind to probe deep into the cosmos. What a great inclination to offer worship through Christ. Now, here's the last thing. Last reason the Eucharist is so central to the Christian life. It's the way by which we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus said in our gospel today, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. See, when we eat something, we take it into our bodies and our bodies transform it into, into energy, sometimes into fat. And, you know, we all, we all aren't happy about that, but cookies are good. Um, but when we receive the flesh and blood of Christ, he transforms us. You see, he transforms us as uh, we become more and more a part of him. We abide in him and he in us. Now, how does this all happen, right? It sounds very mystical and mysterious. Well, um, there's been millions, thousands, probably millions of books written by theologians trying to solve all, how this all works meta- metaphysically. Um, and I will tell you as one who's gone to seminary, don't spend too much time getting lost in the details of all of that. There are better things to do with your life. But listen to what John Kelvin, who's a famous reformer, um, listen to what he says about this. He says, and he wrote a lot about the Eucharist and what he thought was going on in it, but he says this ultimately. Now, if anyone should ask me how this takes place, I shall not be ashamed to confess 
that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. And to speak plainly, I rather experience than understand it. See, it's much more important to come to the altar with an open heart than an informed mind. See, if you come in faith expecting to be met by your Lord, meet him, you will. And if you're encountering him regularly in this intimate feast, how could you not be changed? How could you not be changed? How could you not want to live more like the one who died to give you eternal life? See, if this is where Jesus fills us with his love and his life, what does it mean for us the rest of the week? Our lives, which are, remember, to be a missionary witness to the world, to the Savior of the world, they flow from this altar, right? As our bishop is always saying, all ministry flows from this altar because it's where we again and again receive the benefits of the sacrifice that was made once and for all on our behalf. Um, St. Paul wrote this. He was talking about the Eucharist to some early Christians. And he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Think about the gravity of that. See, when we approach the altar, we're saying, Jesus died to bring me back to God. And that's the basis from which I live my life. See, if we're really astonished at the reality of the cross, if we're, if we're really astonished by it, that we have been brought from sin to salvation, from, from curse to blessing, from life, from death to life, we will live differently. Now, if you're receiving the benefits of Jesus' death week by week, but there's no change in us, we're, we're not growing in our love for God and His Word, we're still holding on to, to grievances from the past. We're not, not, never ever sharing Jesus with anyone else. We're not serving those who are in need. The question is this. Has Jesus' sacrifice, his costly sacrifice for our sins, really made all that much different, difference in our lives? The, the church fathers in the first five centuries, we call them the church fathers, they, they, they wrote a lot and we have their materials. They believed that you couldn't be, and they, they, thought, they saw this as the center of the Christian life, and they believed that you could not be a regular communicant at the Lord's table, but not be a servant in the world. They thought that that was a living contradiction. This is to what um, John Chrysostom says. He was a bishop. He says, do you wish to honor the body of the Savior? He's talking about the Eucharist. Do not despise it when it is naked. Do not honor the church with silk vestments while outside you are leaving it numb with cold and naked. He who said, this is my body and made it so by his word is the same that said, you saw me hungry and you gave me no food. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. Honor him by sharing your property with the poor for what God needs is beautiful. Listen, for what God needs is not golden chalices, but golden souls. Friends, Jesus, the living Jesus, the living risen Jesus communicates his risen life to us in the Eucharist. Not so we can just go back to life as usual but so that we can take his life out into the world and to communicate it to those who are in need. Broken sinners in need of the proclamation of his forgiveness. The poor who are in need of food and shelter. The outcast who is in need of embrace. 
And as his flesh is for the life of the world, we who partake of that flesh then bring life to the world. In clothing, um, St. Paul, it's good for us to be reminded often of these words um, to the Corinthians who were, there were some problems going on with their Eucharistic celebration. It wasn't being taken seriously. And Paul tells them this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of our Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So, As you prepare to take the body and blood of the Lord today, there's two things I would encourage you to meditate on. And maybe you need to meditate on this because you're feeling the weight of the brokenness of your sin. Maybe you're feeling the weight of a a relationship that is broken and distorted. But here's what I encourage you to meditate on. The first is the confidence with which you can approach the God of heaven and earth, assured of your sins being pardoned and your union with the life of Jesus Christ. Bring it to him. Lay it at his feet. Confess it and approach with full assurance. And the second thing is this, the missionary call to communicate that life into the world. This week, you will undoubtedly meet someone in need of the life of Jesus. How will you share with them the bread that gives life to the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you draw us up into the heavenly places each week and feed us at your banquet table. Enable us to depart from that table full, full of joy that we've been reconciled to you and share in your very life and full of your spirit that empowers us one step at a time to become more like your son. As we offer you worship now in song, O Lord, open our lips to sing, making melody in our hearts to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.